it's about money, it's about sex, it's about wisdom, it's about love, it's about death, it's about everything. You're like, well, yeah. How do we get tickets? And Father Pig is like, I already got them. You're like, what? He's like, yeah. You're like, well, who's in it? You're like, he's like, one dude. You're like, one dude. He's like, no, yeah, one dude. This dude is super talented. He's, he's been everywhere. He's done everything. Anything you want, he's already got. This dude's telling his story. You're like, telling his story sounds great. He's like, no, 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 no. Give it a chance. It'll change your life. So you drive down to the Civic Center. You, you park, but it's weird because there's no other cars in the parking lot. You go in. Your father figure gives you, we give the tickets to the ticket lady. She gives you a playbill. She walks you into the orchestra section to the very front row of the auditorium, sits you in the center seat. Of the front row, you look around and your father figure's not there anymore. All of a sudden, lights go down. The spotlight comes up, and there he is on stage. And he introduces the show. He says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he gives 11 lines, and then he exits. And this old man, dressed in simple clothing, comes on stage, sits down on a stool, and begins to speak. And he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. His voice is mesmerizing. You listen. You follow every inflection. You recognize yourself in every word. You laugh. You cry. And then at the climax of the, of the play, he starts talking about death. Starts comparing death to a village where everyone is dying. It's getting sadder and sadder. And finally, he shouts, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Blackout. And the exit stage left. You're shocked. Feels like you've been sitting there since August. The house lights go up. The show is about everything. It's about relationships, about work, money, sex, wisdom, love, death. You don't know what to think. You look to your right and your father figure is sitting right next to you. He puts his arm around you and he says, look, I know you're a little shaken up. I should have told your mom it was rated R for reality. That was heavy. But let me break it down for you. Here's what it's all about. Here's the main point. Here is the end of the matter. That's what verses 9 through 14 are all about. So if it's your first time here, just so you know, we've been studying this book of Ecclesiastes since August. It's been a long time. And for most of the book of Ecclesiastes, as Chauncey has been telling us, there has been a voice speaking that we've called the preacher or the sage who's identified as son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he's been telling us about a lot of ways to ruin your life. Don't live your life this way or it'll be empty. Don't live your life that way or it'll be empty. And... As Chauncey alluded to, last week we came and he said, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And now, as we're getting ready to finish this incredible wisdom book of Scripture, another voice returned, which if you've forgotten what we said the first week of studying this book in August, now we're hearing from the editor who com compiled the words of the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as Chauncey said, he's putting his arm around us and saying, here's the main point. If you got lost in everything we've been saying since August, Here's the main point. Are you ready for the main point? 
Here's what he wants you to take away. And the real summary comes in verse 13. So look back in your bulletin or in your Bible if you got it open. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. That means the preacher has just given you his whole philosophy about how not to live and a little bit about how to live. And now you're saying, what am I supposed to do with this? The text continues. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. A short statement, but very profound. If we're going to feel the depth and power of this, I think we've got to do a little bit of work because the Bible here is using some words that may initially hit us in a way that we don't like. We like it when the Bible uses words like love, forgiveness, grace, freedom. We like those words. Those are Bible words, but the Bible also has some words that might make us modern 21st century people a little uncomfortable, like fear. That's not our favorite, right? Commandments. We don't usually like that one at all. As a matter of fact, in 21st century American culture, when we hear commandments, we think the opposite of freedom. And sometimes the Bible is saying the path of freedom is the path of God's commandments. That's, That's right. what we're hearing here today. And then there's this word duty. We don't usually like that word either. So let's dive deeper into some of these words and think about what they mean in the light of the scripture. First, let's talk about these two words, fear God. Everybody say, fear God. Fear God. Now to clarify what this means, let's first say what it doesn't mean. Christian, there is a wrong way to fear God. There's a way that the Bible says, don't be afraid of God like this. And if you want to see that, you can flip over in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read to you 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, a famous verse here. And talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the text says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There's a wrong way to fear God, and the wrong way to fear God would be to live your life feeling like God is angry at you all the time, you can never live up to God's standards for you, and He's ready to zap you, you're afraid of punishment. This is saying, the good news of Jesus Christ should free you from that kind of fear. Isn't that wonderful? Because what we see when we look at the cross of Jesus is, here's God, the creator of the universe, loving you enough to say, I know you've done wrong, I know you've sinned. I know you've done stuff you're ashamed of, but I'm going to come on myself, bear the consequences of all your sin. So you can be forgiven and be accepted. And you don't have to live under condemnation or guilt or shame. You're free from the fear of punishment. If you trust in Jesus Christ, that gift is yours. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, don't fear like that. Don't fear like that. But then it leaves the question, okay, then what does it mean to fear God? Because this isn't just an Old Testament context, uh, concept. The New Testament tells us many times, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. It echoes this refrain. And as we've studied the book of Ecclesiastes, we try to draw the distinction between servile fear. That's the kind we just said we don't want. That's the fear of a slave who's afraid of his master's whip. We don't fear God like that because God is not a cruel and angry master. He's a loving and compassionate father. But what we've talked is this other kind that theologians call Filial fear. Everybody say filial fear. Filial fear. And this is a kind of, it starts with a kind of reverence and awe, recognizing that when we're dealing with God, 
We're dealing with the creator of the universe. We're dealing with the Holy One. We're dealing with the God of infinite power who's going to, one day when Jesus returns, set the whole world right with perfect grace and justice. So we tremble in His presence even as we know that He loves us. We're in awe of Him. But there's another level here which has to do with the fact that we love God because He first loved us and we cherish our relationship with God so much that we don't want anything to interfere with this relationship. We can find a faint analogy of what this means if we just think about human relationships. Say you fall in love and you find the person you've been praying for and waiting for your whole life and you're dating this person and then maybe you get engaged and you get married and you cherish this relationship. If you value that relationship so much, you're going to have boundaries in place to protect you from anything that would destroy that relationship. Right? If I value my marriage, which I do, then I'm going to have boundaries in place. I'm going to stay away from anything that would hinder my relationship with my wife because this relationship is worth fighting for. That's what it's talking about. The, the scripture says the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. It means I don't want to drift into any territory that would hinder my relationship with God. Because I love him so much. So what it's saying here is, at the end of the book, the preacher has told us, if you live your life without taking God into account, you may be happy for a little while, but it's only a matter of time till the rug is pulled out from under you and you're going to end up miserable. But I want you to know that God, your creator, loves you. That's right. And he's going to set things right. So you need to cling to him. Hold on to Him. Be in awe of Him. Cherish Him. And that means don't do anything that would hinder your relationship with this great God. Everybody say, fear God. Fear God. And then it says, and keep His commandments. The commandments of God reveal to us God's love, God's justice. They reveal to us the way of truth and peace and righteousness. The commandments of God challenge us not to make us miserable, but in order to fulfill us. If we kept the commandments of God, we would be living the way that Dr. King was talking about in that prayer that Jared read a moment ago. We'd be people who love our enemies. We'd be people who love our neighbors as ourselves, which means we're committed to the flourishing of every human being That's right. made by God. God's commandments are not burdensome. God's commandments show us the way of life and peace, and love, and justice, and truth. If the whole world obeyed God's commandments, then the world would not be being ripped apart right now by political chaos, and strife among nations, and strife among ethnic groups, and strife among rich and, rich and poor. We would all be loving each other. The world that we long for is the world that would be here if we loved God with all of our heart, soul, strength, mind, and strength, and loved our neighbors as ourselves. Another way to summarize this is Keeping the commandments of God in our hearts until they transform us from the inside out would look like living like Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who not only came to die on the cross so we could be forgiven for breaking God's commandments, but He also is the only human being who showed to us what does it look like to live a whole life of obedience to God's commandments. He's the God-man, the Son of God, one person in two natures, fully human, fully God. So when we look at Jesus, we see Here's what God is like, but we also see here's what authentic humanness could be like. And it's beautiful. 
it's countercultural, but it's about justice, it's about love, it's about forgiveness, it's about peace. That's the life. And that leads us to the final phrase here, fear God and keep his commandments. And then it says, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, actually, that word translated duty in, in, in our English translation does not appear in the Hebrew. They added that word to try and make it make sense. But I'm not sure that it actually helps it make sense. If we had a more literal rendering of the Hebrew, it would say something like this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole of humanity. That's what it's saying. This is the whole of humanity. If, if we try to paraphrase that to see what it means, it would mean something like this. Cling to God. Treasure your relationship with God so much that you won't let anything into your life that's going to hinder your intimacy with God. Walk in the ways of love and truth and peace and justice that God taught you, and you will find the path to authentic humanness. You'll find what humans were created to be. So at the end of this book of Ecclesiastes, what we're being told is you've heard about a lot of wrong paths to life, but here's the real path to life. Let the great and holy and loving God be the center of your life. Cling to him and walk in his ways. Now, for the rest of the verses in our text today, the editor builds on this truth, or or another way to put it would be he gives us two reasons to tell us once again why we should fear God and keep his commandments. And if you want to write down the two reasons, they're like this. Then we'll unpack them a little bit. First, he tells us, in the end, God's justice will triumph in the world. Isn't that great news? God's justice will triumph in the world. And he also tells us, God's good word shows us the way of life. Those are two reasons why we should fear God and keep his commandments. Let's dive into those two reasons together. So the first reason we should fear God and obey his commandments is found in the last... I'm sorry, Siri is talking to me. It's found in the last verse of the book. Look at, look at verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, what he's saying is God's justice will triumph. Where he said that? But when you first read this verse, your initial response might be like mine, which was, uh-oh. Every deed? You're going to bring every deed into judgment, good and evil? And you start thinking back over some of the worst moments in your life on display for God to see and judge. And you think past those worst moments and go to the hidden thoughts that nobody else sees but that God sees. And you might start trying to make excuses. Who you can blame. What your reason for thinking that was. Trying to paint yourself in the best light. And what the verse tells us is actually God already knows all that. Sobering thought. So the first thing to say about this verse is that your uh uh-oh may be valid. If someone were to publish a list of every single deed, word, or thought we ever had in our life, there would be some good stuff on that list, but there'd be a lot of stuff that's some downright evil stuff on that list, if we're honest. And if we stay in our sin, the day of God's judgment is going to be an uh uh-oh day. But, that's a good but, But you know the God who's coming to judge? His name is Jesus. Jesus is the God who is coming to judge the world. 
Jesus is the God who will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And you know what the name Jesus means? It means God is salvation. Yahweh saves. God wants to save you from the judgment that you deserve because of your sins. God wants to free you from your slavery to sin. Listen, if you placed your faith in Jesus, if you have received his gift of forgiveness by acknowledging Jesus as boss, then your sin has already been judged. God already took your punishment on the cross. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5, 24. In chapter 5 of John, he's, making, he's been making a claim that he is God's son, but he's equal with God. And here's what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. is another way of saying, I am not playing. Whoever, everybody say whoever. Whoever, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth as a man, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead, then Jesus says you already have passed from death to life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, chapter 1. But when Jesus comes back and brings to light the things now hidden in darkness, when he comes and discloses the purposes of the heart, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, we won't receive condemnation. He says, each one will receive his commendation from God. The verdict is already in. You're declared justified by God if you're in Christ. When God comes with his justice, that's not the day of despair for those who are in Christ. The day of the Lord is a day of hope and life and joy because though our sins are forgiven now, we still fight against the temptations of the devil. We still fight against our sinful impulses. We still fight against the sinful pressures of the world. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to do away with sin for good, which means that evil won't be around anymore. Temptation won't be around anymore. Oppression won't be around anymore. Injustice won't be around anymore. Abuse won't be around anymore. Hatred won't be around anymore. Sadness won't be around anymore. Lament won't be around anymore. Pain won't be around anymore. Death won't be around anymore. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So the first reason why we should cling to Jesus and imitate him, obey his commandments, is because God's judgment will triumph, bringing peace and joy and eternal life. All who are in Christ. Don't y'all just love Jesus? Amen. I love Jesus. Second reason that we should fear God and keep his commandments is that God's good word shows us the way of life. The word of God is good. Now, Chauncey and I are going to talk about that from a few different angles because our text talks about it from a few different angles. First, I want to talk to you about the inspiration of Scripture. Look with me at verse 11 starts out by saying, the words of the wise. The words of the wise. It goes on and says, they are like goads and like nails firmly fixed, or they're collected sayings. Chauncey's going to come back and talk to you about what that means in a minute. But for now, I want you to hear the beginning and the end of this verse. The words of the wise are given by one shepherd. And you may notice in the ESV translation printed in your bulletin, that word shepherd has a capital S trying to 
Help us understand the shepherd being talked about here is God. God is the good shepherd. Everybody say the good shepherd. The good shepherd. So God is like a good shepherd. We are like the sheep, which means he protects us. It means he guides us. It means he feeds us. He lovingly cares for us throughout our lives. And one of the ways that he cares for us is by giving words of wisdom. The words of the wise all come from God. Now, one thing that this means is that true wisdom, wherever we find it, is ultimately from God. All truth is God's truth. All wisdom in God is God's wisdom, which means, listen, if you're talking to your friend or you turn on the TV or if you walk into a bookstore and pick up a book and you find some stuff that is wise and true and good, ultimately it came from God. Give glory to God. Take it. Learn from it. And the biblical doctrine of common grace lets us know that God scatters his gift abroad so that there's all sorts of people, even people who don't know Jesus, who can still perceive aspects of God's truth. And a truly humble person will be ready to learn from anybody. Right? So we can find wisdom wherever it comes to us. Proverbs says wisdom cries out in the streets for anybody who wants to listen. And all wisdom ultimately comes from God. However, we need to recognize that when we're talking to our friends... Or if we wander into a bookstore and start randomly pulling shelves out the book, or if we flip on the TV, while we might find some wisdom there, we're probably going to find some other stuff too. Amen? We're going to find a mixture of wisdom and foolishness, of truth and error. Proverbs says wisdom cries out in the street, but it also says folly cries out in the street. Both are all around us. So we might start to ask the question, is there anywhere that we can go to find wisdom unmixed? Truth without any mixture of error that can show us the way of life. I'm glad you asked. The answer is yes. And I want you to listen to these words from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Famous verse on the inspiration of scripture which we can read to help us make sense out of what's being said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. 2 Timothy 3 beginning verse 14. Paul the apostle is writing to his protege Timothy and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. That word inspiration that I said a second ago means breathed out. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. What it's saying here is that in our Bibles we have a book which is also a library. It's a book that was written by many, many men and maybe some women. In multiple languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, over the course of many centuries. But what unites these books is that they were all breathed out by God the Holy Spirit. So that these words of human beings are also the very words of God. And that taken together, they show us the way of wisdom through faith in Jesus Christ. And they're competent to equip us for a life of truth and justice and peace. God's wisdom without any mixture of folly. So what the text is saying to us here is if you want wisdom unmixed, pay attention to what God has said. Now, right now, there may be people in the room who are spiritually seeking. You don't know yet if you want to become a Christian. You may have questions about how do we know that the Bible is God's word? And what about the Apocrypha and the Gnostic Gospels? And I, 
watch this show on the Discovery Channel and now I don't know what to believe about what's the scripture. I would love to talk to you about that. We don't have time for all that right now. My short answer to the question would be Jesus authenticated these texts and then he rose from the dead. So I'm going to listen to what Jesus said. That would be the short answer. But we could talk in much more depth about this, that question. But right now what I just want to say to you is this is why Christians make a big deal out of the Bible. This is right every Sunday when Chauncey or I or Jared or whoever teaches stands up. What we're teaching is God's word. We're opening up our Bibles to read because here is the truth of God. And uh, you can think about an analogy here. You need wisdom to live like you need nutrition to live. Uh, I, I fancy myself a nutritionist because I've watched some YouTube cha- uh, videos about this. And so I've learned you need some macronutrients. Uh, some carbohydrates and some protein and some fat. (laughs) You also need some micronutrients, minerals, vitamins, stuff like that. You know, you need all that stuff, all that good stuff. And apparently you can go to the grocery store (laughs) and you can get kale if you want to. And you can get broccoli and you can get carrots and you can get all sorts of good stuff at the produce aisle and you can get meat and you can get whole grains. You come back, chop it up and eat it. And it's all nutrition unmixed or You can go across the street to the fast food restaurant across the street from my house. And if I go to that and I eat it, it's going to have protein. It's going to have fat. It'll have plenty of both those. It's going to have carbohydrates. That will keep me alive. But the problem is it also has a bunch of other stuff in it. 90% of my saturated fat for the day from this one meal. If I get the number three, supersize, right? <laughs> Actually, supersize, I think that pushes us over the 100%. <laughs> Enough salt to last me all week. Enough sugar to put me in a hypoglycemic coma. So what I'm saying is, if I eat that way every day, it'll keep me alive today, but it's going to kill me over time. Wow. Which is to say, all wisdom is God's wisdom. All truth is mm. God's truth. But Christians, were people of the book because this book is breathed out by God. Come on. So we wanted to give us that life-giving truth without any mixture of error that shows us the way of life from God. Ah, let's get in the Word. Let's stay in it. All right, now beginning of verse 11 shows us how God uses his wide, wise words to shepherd us. Look again at the beginning of verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Now a goad is a pointy stick. So if a shepherd has a flock of sheep and they're headed toward a cliff, a good shepherd will use that pointy stick, that goad, to poke the ship and the sheep and turn them, turn them in the right direction. Does the shepherd want to hurt the sheep? Not permanently. Just enough so they get the idea that this ain't the way you want to go. If you keep going in this direction, you're going to get a lot more than pokes. All wise words are like this, but God's word is especially like this. If we're going in the wrong direction, it'll confront us. It'll stop us. It'll say, this ain't the way to go. Have you ever, how many of you ever been, you have to show your hand if you don't want to, rebuked by a brother or sister in Christ? At the time, it doesn't feel good. It feels like a poke to your ego. But a few days later or a few months later or maybe a few years later, you'll look back and you'll say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your rebuke. How many of you have ever asked a wise friend for advice and they gave you advice, but it wasn't the advice you wanted to hear? And they backed it up with scripture. 
Let me tell you, if you take that advice, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it hurts, a little while later, you'll get on your knees or you look up to heaven and you'll say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your wisdom. How many of you have ever been about to do something? How many of you, slow that down, run it back. How many of you have ever been about to do something foolish? And then a verse or a hymn or a piece of advice comes to your head and says, it's not the way. A little while later, you'll thank God for his goading wisdom. God's word is a goad. It shows us the right way to go, the way toward green pastures and still waters and toward the path of real rest, toward the path of righteousness. That's where it goes. If we listen to his word, it'll keep us. It says his word is like nails, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. See, God's word is a place of stability, of permanence. If you base your life on, on the word of God, you won't be moved even when life is quaking here and there. When your friend asks you to do something you know is foolish, if you stake your decision on God's word, it'll lead you in a way of wisdom. When your boss asks you to make an unethical decision, God's word is trustworthy. It'll help you know the right direction. When the moral compass of the culture shifts, those who base their life on God's word are always calibrated toward true north. God is the good shepherd whose word is like a goad and like nails firmly fixed, so he will keep you. And finally, we want to talk to you from these verses about, actually there's one more reason, isn't it? Finally, penultimately, penultimately, second to last, we want to talk to you about the sufficiency of Scripture. So we talked about the inspiration of Scripture, now let's talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Look at verse 12, I'm going to back up and read verse 11 one more time to give verse 12 its context. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now listen to this. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The point here is that in life, it is easy to exhaust ourselves looking for wisdom, looking for answers to our big questions in all the wrong places. It's easy just to wear ourselves out. As a matter of fact, in one way, that's what this whole book of Ecclesiastes has been about. The sage has been trying solution after solution, answer after answer to solve the problems and resolve the questions of life. And he keeps finding things that don't work. And now at the end of the book, we're saying, don't exhaust yourself looking for this. This theme was... Uh, Introduced way at the beginning. Let me read you chapter 1, verse 8 again of Ecclesiastes. The very first chapter where we read this. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So right at the beginning of this book, he said, listen, if you spend your life searching for joy, searching for meaning, searching for purpose, searching for satisfaction, without taking God and God's word into account, it'll just exhaust you and you'll never find it. So now at the end, it's saying, come back to the source. God is the fountain of wisdom. God is the fountain of life. Now, what's the application for this? Does this mean we should never read any book besides our Bible? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so for several reasons. I've already indicated some of them. Because of God's common grace, 
There's truth all over the place. God created this whole world. He wants us to use our brains and to study his world and to learn. So I read lots of books. And it's, it's great to seek wisdom from people and to read lots of books. But what this is saying, once again, is if you want pure, unmixed, concentrated wisdom for your life, come back to the scriptures. Be a people whose life is shaped by this book. It will not lead you astray. I want to return to the beginning verses of our passage. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And what these verses are saying is that the, the sage in the book of Ecclesiastes is a wise man, but he's also a studious man. He has learned wisdom through his life, but he's not content with just learning from his experience. He wants to know what God has taught other wise people so he can learn from them and pass that knowledge on. He's doing what John Mark just talked about. He's studying God's world. He's learning from everybody he can. He's weighing and studying, pondering, analyzing, considering, evaluating. Then he's taking that insight and he's laying it down in a way that we can understand. And there's two words that describe what that wisdom looks like. And then the last point about why it's important to devote ourselves to God's word for life. And that is that words of wisdom are going to be words of truth and words of delight. Words of truth and delight. We'll start with truth. Wise words are true words. If you want to know if something is wise, you get some advice and you want to know, is this wise? First question you should ask is, is it true? (laughs) If it's not true, it ain't wise. One thing we can be certain of about God's word is that it is always true. Psalm 1830 says the word of the Lord proves true. God's word is true. It's reliable. It is dependable. It won't lead you into error. God is the God of truth and his words are true words. But it's not just about being true words. That is crucial. But wise words are also a delight. They're ordered toward beauty. When you see something beautiful, it delights you. When you see a sunset, it delights you. When you hear a beautiful song, it delights you. Wise words are that way. They're going to be delightful for the wise person. A fool may not think wise words are delight. It's not the words, it's them. But if you're wise, wise words will be a delight. Listen, just because we said that wise words are like goads doesn't mean they're swords. Proverbs 12 of 18 says, tells us, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. See, rash words can slaughter a sheep. Rash words can tear someone to pieces. Even true words can be unwise words. Because wise words bring healing. They will result in, in beauty, in restoration, in health, in delight. So these are characteristics of the word of God. God's word is true and God's word is the light. It is healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones, as Proverbs 3, verse 8. Why do we attend to God's word? Because God's word is truth and the light. So, yes, it's, in, it's inspired by God. It is a go that leads us in the right direction. It is sufficient. It's also true and it's delightful. 
We fear God and we keep his commandments because his word really is the way to life, to truth, and to joy. So in sum, these last verses of Ecclesiastes are saying, God's good word shows you the way of life. God's justice will triumph in the end. Therefore, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, we want to end today, not just this sermon, but our extended study of the book of Ecclesiastes by returning to the metaphor that we started with back in August. And we said, as we read this book of Ecclesiastes, here's what we want you to imagine. If you were here, this is going to jog your memory. If you weren't here, here you go. Imagine that you're in a hall, a big hallway. And you can look down the hallway that way. And as far as you can see, on the left and on the right are doorways. And you can look down the hallway that way. And as far as you can see, on the left and on the right are doorways. And each of them is labeled. Some of these doorways say pleasure. Some of them say things like power. Some of these say money or success or comfort or security. They might say things like legacy. I'm going to be remembered forever. And each of these doorways is an opportunity. You can walk in here to try and find meaning for your life. I'm going to find a significant life by devoting myself to the pursuit of pleasure. Or I'm going to find meaning for my life by becoming powerful, becoming famous, whatever it is. And part of what's been happening throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that the sage, the preacher, every time we're about to walk into a door, he walks out and says, don't go in there. I tried that one for 10 years. Remember when we talked about pleasure? He said, I was rich. I had a big old house. I had a lot of lands. I had great food. I had a whole harem of people to satisfy all my fantasies. And all the pleasure tasted good for a while, and then it turned to ash in my mouth. And the emptiness, I could feel it. He, he said, I worked hard to try and build a legacy. And then I looked around the world and said, listen, Everybody who was great in previous generations, we've already forgotten. Who's going to remember me? I'm going to be dead anyway. Who cares if they remember me? Over and over, he says, this door won't work, that door won't work, this door won't work, that door won't work. And that could lead us to despair if we read that in isolation from the message of the gospel. But now as we finish Ecclesiastes, we, we get the point. Saying there is a door. That's right. Exactly one door. Which leads you to life, and it's the Jesus door. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and Jesus says, I am the door. What we're saying is, everything good that you long for and that you might be searching for behind all those other doors, it's good because it comes from God. But if you try and take it apart from God, it won't satisfy you, it won't sustain you, it'll let you down. But if you come to God himself, the source, he will give you life. He will satisfy your soul. The Jesus, the door, is the creator of the universe saying, I know all your mistakes and I know all your longings. And so so far, your experiment to try and find satisfaction in life apart from me hasn't worked. So why don't you come trust me? It's the creator of the universe saying, I know all about your failures, but I've already taken the punishment for them so you can be forgiven. I want to give you my forgiveness as a gift. And Jesus says, come follow me and I'll show you the way of life. This sentence, fear God and obey his commandments, I've said we could paraphrase, cling to God 
and walk in his ways. And now as we get ready to go to the Lord's table, let's just take that a little further. What it's saying is hold fast to Jesus and walk with Jesus. That's the meaning of your life. Now, if you're here and you know Jesus, but you've drifted, the invitation to the Lord's Supper is an invitation to come back home. It's to come back to Jesus and say, all those other doors didn't satisfy me. Only you can satisfy me. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, at this moment, we just pause to give you glory. We thank you for the wisdom that we find in Holy Scripture. Forgive me and forgive all of us here for the many times that we have tried to go our own way and stubbornly refused to listen to your word and done harm to ourselves and others. We thank you for the grace that there is in Jesus. And I ask right now that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work in all of our hearts to call us to Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't have a relationship with you, who's seeking truth today, I pray that your Spirit would draw that person to Jesus Christ. And Lord, for everyone here who already has trusted in Jesus, but life gets hard and we get distracted, I pray that your Holy Spirit would call us home to Jesus again today. That you'd be, make us a people who are so filled with Jesus that despite all of our weakness and our ongoing struggle, the life of Jesus would shine through us in a way that would give peace and hope and healing to our hurting world. It's in Christ's name.